I'm Aryeh Cohen, and this is Daf Shui. Weekly Daf. Give me 40 minutes or so, and I'll give you a Daf or so. So here it is February, and here in Los Angeles, we are dragging the firewood from the backyard and wondering, why are we dragging the firewood from the backyard? It's Los Angeles. But anyway, here at Daf Shui, in our comfy little Beit Midrash in the closet, we try to bring you the highest quality Daf Shui programming available on this site. We so appreciate your being here with us, pulling up a chair to our imaginary table, and joining us in the centuries-old process of asking the question, what were the rabbis thinking? So now, we are asking for you, if you are able, to be partners in this venture by going to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash dafshui, which is linked also to our podcast page, and becoming card-carrying members of the Beit Midrash, cards not included. Remember, we are not one of those corporate dafyomi outfits. We're more of a rickety storefront shtibel dafyomi. Thank you so much. Who's daf? Who's daf? Who's daf? My father is buried in the Eretz HaChaim Cemetery in Beit Shemesh, which is a western suburb of Jerusalem. He died in New York, and after a funeral there, his body was flown to Israel, and there was another funeral and an interment on the hillside in Beit Shemesh. I watched with my sisters on a computer screen from Passaic, New Jersey, as people I didn't know danced around his body in a uniquely Jerusalemite burial ritual and then laid him to rest in the ground of the land of Israel, a place which he longed to live in. When I visited his grave about two years later, I saw that it was in a new neighborhood in the cemetery. He was, in death, unlike in life, not surrounded by friends or family, buddies he could schmooze with. However, over the next few years, more and more graves joined his, and I imagine that he has made friends with all these new dead people whom he didn't know in life. He was like that. He might still be like that. Cemeteries are an odd phenomenon. People, if they can afford it, buy a plot of land to be buried in. The cemetery itself is public land to some extent, but also private. There are now in the Jewish community and have been for centuries organizations that tend to burial, that own burial plots which they sell to people in anticipation of the one inevitability, the one certainty, death. They also sell plots to the family of those who had not prepared for that inevitability. Cemeteries are seen as sacred ground and are treated with an enormous amount of respect. They are, however, the land of the impure. At the exit to a Jewish cemetery, there is a place to ritually wash one's hands to wash away the impurity. A dead body is the most impure object, and yet, the highest mitzvah is to help with the burial, to be part of a burial society, a chever kadisha, literally a holy group of fellows. Treating a dead body with respect and dignity and burying the body is considered a chesed shalemet, an act of true kindness, since it can never be repaid. The grave and the gravestone is a focus for memories and love and respect that descendants accord their ancestors. The first century Palestinian Tana, Reb Shimon Bar Yochai, after he came out of his 12 years of living in a cave, identified graves that had been erased. Reb Shimon Bar Yochai is credited by the mystics with having written the Zohar, a book that was actually written almost a thousand years after his death. His spiritual heir, Reb Yitzchak Luria, known as the Holy Ari, identified the gravesite of Reb Shimon Bar Yochai at Miron and others. It is not simple to talk about the Jewish cemeteries in late antique Palestine and Sasanian Persia. There were extensive burial caves, some of which have been dug and researched by archaeologists. These necropolises, literally places of the dead, were mainly family burial sites, private affairs, though often rather large systems of burial sites, courtyards, staircases, crypts, arched recesses for sarcophagi. The necropolis at Bet Sharim, one of the most famous of these, is known as the supposed site of the burial of Rabbi Yehuda Nasi, the patriarch, and his family. There's no real proof of this. 
although archaeologists have found several crypts whose inscriptions included the title rabbi. The timing of the earliest period of this burial site is the second or third century, and therefore the time the rabbi, who, which is what Rabbi Yudah is sometimes called, lived and died, and therefore he was probably associated with this site. Many dead Jews from Babylonia, as my father was, were brought after death to the land of Israel to be buried in the Holy Land. This practice is noted in the Talmud, and some approve and some don't. But there are inscriptions in the burial sites, often in Greek, noting that the person buried there was brought by their child to be buried there as an act of filial piety. The dead do not leave us. They comfort us. They haunt us. We memorialize them. We respect them. We work out our traumas with them, without them. Yet, at the end, the land that they occupy is also fraught land. When a city wants to expand, when a company wants to build a new factory, the seemingly empty land that houses only the bodies and perhaps the spirits of the dead beckons with a capitalist seduction that is hard to resist. And then the question is raised, whose dead are deserving of respect? By pure coincidence, this week I came across an article in ProPublica documenting the way that in 2015, the Microsoft company and the government of Mecklenburg County, Virginia, relocated tens of black corpses from what was a family cemetery, riding roughshod over the process of obtaining a historic preservation designation and then burying those dead in an unmarked mass grave, to the end of Microsoft building a data center. None of the family members of those buried there were notified, though some were prominent citizens. No marker or plaque was placed at the site of the cemetery or on the Microsoft building. A few years later, the county wanted to move the graves of some white people in order to clear a field to build an addition to a high school. In this case, a public hearing was held, and the corpses were reinterred with dignity in a family cemetery a few miles away. Who deserves dignity? Who deserves respect? Who is memorialized? These questions are central to who we are. All this is to bring us to today's DAF. We are on 100B, Kuf Amud Bet, about five lines, six lines from the bottom of the page in the layout that was originally published and publicized by the widow and brothers Rome in Vilna, low these 150 years ago. And we are talking about the obligations of one who sells a memorial plot, a, a burial plot, and the one who buys one. Hamocher makom If one sells a place to his fellow to make for him a burial, a, a grave or a burial site. Or if one accepts from his fellow a site to make for him a, it's more than a kever, is a singular, we use it today to just mean grave, but obviously it means burial site, because, as we'll see in a minute. So, in either of those cases, one makes the inside of the cave four amot by six amot, four cubits by six cubits. In other words, you go inside the cave and you have to make kind of a a foyer, an anteroom, except that is the room itself, four amot by six amot, and amot is about 18 inches. Upoteach litocha shmona kuchin, shalosh mikan, and then you dig in the walls of that hall in the cave, into the stone, eight kuchin. A kuch is like a crypt, is a small niche for a, for a body. Three on one side, three on the side opposite it, and two opposite the doorway, and that gives you eight crypts, or eight kuchin. Bekuchin orkan arbaamot veruman sheva verachban shisha. And each kuch, each niche or crypt, is four amot long to fit a body plus. Bodies are assumed to be three amot, which is something like uh, five feet, more or less. 
And then you have an extra ama for wiggle room, for the beer that you put the body on. Uh, Ruman Sheba and seven tfachim high, seven handbreadths high. Rachban Shisha and six handbreadths wide. Six handbreadths wide is one. There are six tfachim in an ama. Right, so then you have um, one ama wide for each crypt. You have eight amot, and so then you have enough room in between the crypts to have space so that the crypts don't fall into each other, and they can hold the wood. Okay. Rabbi Shimon Omer, Oset tocha shel me'ara, sheish amot al shmona. Rabbi Shimon says, no, you make the inside of the cave six amot by eight amot. So it would be eight amot in from the opening and six amot wide. And you have to open into that foyer um, 13 crypts. Four on either side and three on the side facing the door. And one from on the, to the right of the doorway and one to the left of the doorway. And we'll see soon that that becomes a a question of whether that is actually on the right of the doorway or on the right, the corner of the opposite wall. But pshat is that it's on the right to the doorway and on the left of the doorway, and that all together you get 13. And then one creates a courtyard outside the cave, which is six by six amot, which should hold the body, the mita, the beer, and the barriers, those who are carrying the dead and those who are burying the dead. And one can use this one courtyard for two burial caves, one on either side. And Reb Shimon says, no, you could use it for four burial caves, one on each of its sides. So you have a, a courtyard in the middle and four burial caves open onto it. Bishimu ben Gamliel Omer, Bishimu Gamliel, comes up with a very reasonable bottom line. Hakol fiasela. What are you talking about? It all depends on, on, on the stone, on how hard it is to dig into the stone. Okay, so before we go on to the Gemara, let's take a jog over to the Tosefta. Elu ve'elu shayu omrim so whether it's uh, Rib Shimon or the first comment, Rabbanan, the anonymous comment, both of them say that the height of the cave has to be four amot high, and the height of the crypts have to be seven handbreadths and uh, another handbreadth uh, on top of that. So in other words, if you're, so you're digging in down, if you walk on top of it, and there's a handbreadth between the top of the body and the top of the crypt or the top of the, the land, then it is not, then you don't, you become impure from it. Then the Tosefta goes on, just like the Mishnah, one who makes a courtyard in front of the burial cave, it has to be six by six amot. The amount of a, of a beer on either side. And there are two burial caves that open up into it. Rib Shimon says there are four burial caves from each of the four sides. The Rabbi Yehuda says, actually, it depends on the stone, and the stone that is, if the stone is easier, then you put in two from either side. 
They say to him, no, you can't do that. That doesn't, it doesn't work out. So it is a question, if you have four, I wrote, four caves on all four sides, their openings are six amot, and the, the courtyard is six amot. So how do you get into the courtyard? You have to have a whole other way of getting into the courtyard. That's neither here nor there. But there is, what is interesting is that we found in the um, burial grounds in Beth Sharim in the Galilee. So we actually found burial caves which were similar to some extent to those which are described here in in the Mishnah. And one of the things that uh, Zev Weiss, who's a, an Israeli scholar who wrote an article called Burial Practices in Beth, Sh- Beth Sharim and the date of the patriarchal necropolis, right? He writes that the 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 work of carving into the stone was not easy, and one must assume that it cost a lot of money, right? So that to have to take into account. So that's why we're talking about family burials or people who own their own burial grounds, or and, and the people there in the patriarchal burial ground, those were probably uh, the ones that are assumed to be, though it's not unclear, um, that it belonged to Rabbi Yehuda Nasi, but those were rich people. So they were able to build this kind of elaborate burial place. And digging or, or, or carving individual—I'm translating from the Hebrew as I go—carving from uh, the carving individual crypts for individual burial in a room in which, which was uh, narrow was seen to be a waste of money as opposed to creating arched rooms for a number of sarcophagi all at once. Right. So, in other words, that this is a move. This is a development. There was a move from burial in Kuchim, which is what our Mishnah explains. And seemingly historically, there was a move to being buried in Kimarim, which are the arched rooms for a sarcophagi, arch recess for a sarcophagi. Okay. So, what's interesting there is that um, we do have both. We have both. We have two things. One is that it seems that the Mishnah is describing as the norm something that was earlier. In other words, that at the by the time the Mishnah was finished, by the time the Mishnah was, they were already moving towards a different type of burial, which was rather than these individual crypts in either side, three and three and two, or four and four and three and two. Rather, uh, they were moving to uh, Kmarim, which are these arched recesses in which there were a number of sarcophagi, which was more efficient and easier because you didn't have to um, if especially if you were digging into stone in the Galilee, it would be easier to dig a large recess and then put move-in sarcophagi, which are these stone boxes to put a body in, which are sometimes elaborately carved coffins, one might say, if one remembered the word. Uh, but they are—you uh, could put more than one. You could line them up one next to the other, and so you could have more people buried in the same amount of room, and it would be more efficient, more cost-effective, especially since it cost a lot of cost a lot of money. And it also seems that, and we'll go into the Gemara, there's a whole elaborate system of how do we get, how do you manage to get this number of graves in every burial cave if they are one next to the other, and the cave, and you have the burial cave, and the the foyer in the middle, and it's as if you have the, the, the crypts shooting out from that middle foyer. But then if you put four next to each other, there's going to be overlaps at the corner. They're going to be like whiff, like like a, a, a loom. You have 
the warp and the woof, but you don't want the warp and the woof because they hit each other. So how are we going to solve that problem? And that's uh, what the Gemara say. But those that probably the way they solved it in in reality was that they didn't build it that way. They there were some none of the none of the burial caves have this number or in this exact formation of graves. And so this seems to be some kind of an ideal notion of a burial cave. Now, also, there are, sometimes we find, we found elsewhere, for example, in looms, the looms that are described in Mishnah, talked about in a book by Miriam Peskowitz called uh, Spinning Fantasies, a book from some 30 years ago, in which she shows that the looms that are described in the Mishnah were looms that were already out of fashion. They weren't the looms that were being used at the time the Mishnah was being written. And her claim is that those looms, those old looms, were symbols of domesticity. And so it was a conservative move to describe those looms as the ones that on which people were weaving. I'm not sure what the reason here is that the Mishnah didn't keep up with the burial technology on the outside. This might have been cleaner or there might be something else. This week's podcast is brought to you by Job and Friends Group Therapy. Are you feeling down, sad? Does it feel like your life is going nowhere? Well, come to Job and Friends, and after your first hour of group therapy, you will realize that your life could be so much worse. Now, Job and Friends have locations in both Sura and Pumbedita. And for listeners of this podcast, if you mention Dafshui, you get a 20% discount off your first session. Job and Friends, because your life could be so much worse. Okay. Now let's go to the Gemara, and also in going to the Gemara, we're moving from Eretz Yisrael to Bavel, and with a little bit going back to Eretz Yisrael. And Bavel is a very different situation than Eretz Yisrael. The burial was not necessarily in digging into the mountain. They're burial more close to our fields that we have, uh, that we see nowadays in cemeteries. But also, there was uh, religiously the Zoroastrians, at least the pious Zoroastrians did not bury the dead. They left them uh, exposed, and then after the birds did their thing, after a while, they put them into towers or other types of religious um, buildings so as not to make the land impure with their bodies. And even though archaeologists have shown that actually there are remains, which seem to say that at least some Zoroastrians we're not as punctilious about filling this legislation, but burial itself might have been something that was more fraught in Sasanian Persia, and there are no graveyards in cities there, no urban cemetery, as St. John Simpson says in, a, in an article called The Land Behind Ktesiphon, the Archaeology of Babylonia during the period of the Babylonian Talmud, no urban cemeteries of this period have yet been located. And so there were no burial sites in cities, cemeteries in cities, although it seems likely that the abandoned city site of Seleucia, then known as Deserta Kibitas, offered a convenient place of burial for the populace of nearby Ve'ardashir, Ve'ardashir, well-known from the Gemara. So burial sites were probably outside of the city. Excavated graves indicate that the normal graves consisted of a simple vertical earth-cut shaft, sometimes with an undercut side chamber, probably originally blocked off with bricks or brushwood, and others consisted of brick cysts with pitched brick roofs. So they're just very different, very different looking than what is described in the Mishnah. 
um, even though these are not necessarily Jewish burial sites. A larger number of smaller sites in Mesopotamia provide direct archaeological evidence for Sasanian graves within a rural setting, and these are probably representative of the types of community graves commonly described in the Bavli. So there were a large number of smaller sites which had some of these kind of communal graves or familial burial sites, as, as they're called. Okay, let's see what the Gemara does say about this, the, the, the Bavli. Hani So these two, we say there are two on either side of the opening. Which way are they dug? If they're dug to the outside, then people who are standing in the chatzer, in the courtyard outside, will walk all over them. And we have a Mishnah in Ohalot, which says that the, the courtyard of the burial cave, one who stands in there is pure. So how could one who stands in there be pure if there is actually a grave going under, a crypt going under that uh, courtyard? who is a second, third generation Palestinian Amora, says that it was made like a nagar, is, is a, a, a lock which just drops down in the door into the floor. So what he means is that it's a just a kind of a pit that you, you bury people in vertically, as if they're standing up. So how can you say that? Rabbi Yochanan, also another earlier Palestinian sage, says that, uh, that that type of burial is the type of burial for a donkey. You bury a donkey, you don't bury people that way, you bury animals that way. It's not respectful. The Rabbi Yochanan, Da'avid so according to what so according to Rabbi Yochanan, what would you do? You have to do it in if you bury if you use the corner and you dig the crypts out, so they will overlap, as it were, and then they will occupy the same place. You can have crypts bumping into crypts, and you can't have that. Amravashi, Ravashi, a fifth generation Babylonian uh, Amora, says Bimaamik that you dig it deeper. Right? In other words, that you dig so you have two layers, so you have one go like two ammo down and the other four ammo down or whatever it is. So you dig one under the other so they're not, they're crossing over but they're not touching. Because if you're not going to say this, So how are you going to have four burial caves around a central courtyard according as Rabbi Shimon says? In that case, if you have the four burial caves around the central courtyard so the caves that are coming the the crypts that are coming out of the burial caves especially the ones that are in the corners they overlap each other and they're all going to hit each other if they're on the same level right so you have a central courtyard and then you have around you have four sides of the courtyard and on each side you have a burial cave and then each burial cave if you the burial cave in the north you turn to the western wall. You go in and you turn left to the western wall. And there are four burial crypts there. But if you go back outside to the courtyard and you go into the western cave and you go to the northern wall, you also have four crypts going out. And so those eight crypts will be beating each other up. Or at least they'll crash into each other. Or what do you do? It only works if you put them on different levels. Bimamik. So here too, in the corner, you should you could put them on different levels. 
Reb Huna braid Reb Yeshua Amar Abama Arot Reb Shimon the Avid Lahu Ki Cheruta. So Reb Huna says Reb Huna the son of Reb Yeshua says that the four Ma'arot of Reb Shimon, what you do is you you splay the uh you splay the crypts out as if they are on a palm tree. No, no, it's not like a palm branch. It's like the, the palm tree, so that it's, it's the leaf of a palm tree, so that it's splayed out, so that it's all, in other words, that they are all, it's not that it's not splayed, but they're all in a, they're all angled. They're all angled together. And so they go, they don't hit each other, but they all, just like the, the leaves of a palm branch, are all going in the same direction so that they don't hit each other or overlap with each other. So too, the the crypts on the outside are not straight out, are not in 90-degree angles, but are rather angled off to the side, one side or the other, so that they uh, march together. Michtei kol amta beribua, amta vitrei because in every square ama, you have an ama in two-fifths, in diagonal, rabbinic math, unclear how you get to that. But kama So if you have so, and how many crypts do you have? Eleven and a fifth crypts. That comes out that that's how much room you have. Kama havu tamne. How many you have? Eight tamne So how do you get eight in uh, eleven and a half? But rather, what Rabbi Yeshua, what what uh, Rabbi Huna Braid Rabbi Yeshua says is that they are on and on. They are angled out like the leaves on a palm tree are 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 you know fit with each other and angled out. Or another possibility is to say that it's like according to Rabbi Shisha Braid Rabbi Edi, who says that the corners where you have the biggest problem of the uh, crypts overlapping each other, um, are used for small graves for uh, fetuses or for for fetuses that don't don't come to term. And then you put them in those small graves. Hachanami benifli, and here to let us say that in the corners, we don't have to worry about graves, the graves hitting each other or getting in each other's way because we're talking about small graves which are used for fetuses, which didn't make it to term. Okay, we're going to stop here. Kind of a short Gemara, but a lot, because there's a lot of math involved. So that's what the Rishonim are arguing about, is how do we get there. We kind of fudged that, but that's okay. Thank you so much for joining me this week in the Bay Midrash in the Closet. My thanks, as always, to Eli Unger-Sargon, my producer, Check out his podcast, Four Cubits, with Jeff Helmreich. Thanks to my wonderful Chavruta, Charlotte van Robert, and of course to the comms team here at Daf Shui, Shachar Cohen Hodas, who made that beautiful logo. You can follow me on Twitter at Irmiklat, I R M I K L A T, and you can reach me with your comments or criticisms or questions at The Widow and the Brothers at gmail.com. Be well, stay healthy, see you next time in the Bait Midrash in the Closet.